Amidst all the ongoing conflict throughout the world, it is important to remember the long-term effects of warfare as the United States passes the 20th anniversary of the start of the war in Iraq, which brings us to the question of how we got here and what may happen next. Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I am your host, Drew Starbuck. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today, our analyst today is Kieran Bezelson. Hey, Kieran. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. And focusing on the international aspect today is Liam Brucker Casey. Hi, Liam. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show, Liam. Um, so I want to just get into some background information on the Iraq War, guys. I think. Americans have a general understanding of the Iraq War, as in it's been going on for a certain period of time now. We've just passed the 20th anniversary. But I do want to dive deeper into the motivations at the beginning of what were the initial motivations for the U.S. invading in 2003? Yeah, I could take that. Pretty much since the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in the early 90s, um, and even leading up to that to an extent, the U.S. was having pretty tense uh, relations with Iraq, to say the least. Um, they invaded Iraq to liberate Kuwait um, with pretty widespread international support. All sorts of countries, whether super close, long allies of the United States to less involved countries, all came together to condemn the invasion of Kuwait and to support the liberation of the country. Leading up to that, there was fallout in terms of the sort of peace that was uh, negotiated where the U.S. basically tried to neuter any military capabilities of Iraq in terms of its ability to exert its influence uh, militarily, uh, meaning that the Iraqi military couldn't fly any sort of planes, military planes, you know, south of a certain line, and they couldn't fly any to the north. And the U.S. enforced this um, no-fly zone and shot down a couple Iraqi jets over the years. And then in the later 90s and then leading up to the 2003 invasion, things became even more tense. Do you have anything to add on to that, Kieran, on this background of hostility between the United States and Iraq? Yeah, I mean, besides the no-fly zone, the West generally imposed a lot of sanctions on Iraq, which tanked its economy in the 90s. Iraq is also a multi-ethnic state. It's, um, from a religious perspective, it's one-third Sunni and two-thirds Shia. And then you also have various different ethnic groups, Arabs, Kurds, you know, et cetera, all of which had various gripes with each other that went back decades, if not centuries. And Saddam was kind of one of the only things keeping them from murdering each other, which we'll kind of get to later um, when we talk about the conflict itself when Iraq breaks into essentially civil war. But these sanctions pitted these groups against each other, essentially. You have kind of the scapegoat mentality that you see in a lot of countries um, that are, you know, multi-ethnic, but also economically stagnant, um, and also you know, for the desperation of the Saddam regime and the Ba'ath Party in general. You mentioned, Kieran, that there was, Saddam was the one keeping Iraq together to a certain extent. And as in the invasion went on, Iraq breaking apart into civil war. Is that part of the reason you think the United States did not remove Sa Saddam from power originally in the Persian Gulf War? Yeah, I think it's one of the main drivers um, as to why they, they didn't remove him in the first place. Uh, obviously, regime change is destabilizing regardless, as we've <laughs> as we've come to learn in the past 20 years, many times over. Um, but I think they knew that at the time. Um, they knew they had a little bit of an inkling as to the, you know, the actual religious and ethnic tensions within the country and had a bit of a realization that 
you know, you can't just create this massive power vacuum immediately. And there were also concerns, again, with Iran, which we'll get to later. Um, I also think it's um, important to note that the U.S. certainly was not always a fierce opponent of the Saddam regime. While, you know, the U.S. was never um, as close with Iraq as it was with some other countries, particularly in the instance of the Iran-Iraq war, the U.S. did give a, a fairly healthy amount of support, maybe not the most uh, public and uh, proud support, but certainly aided the government as it was opposing what it viewed at the time to be a much more important enemy, being the Iranian regime under the uh, Islamic Republic. So there were always pragmatic U.S. maneuvering uh, with the relationship with the Saddam regime. Mm -hmm. I think just one more thing to add, you have still a bit of the legacy of um, Vietnam here um, and, and the idea of state building the U.S. is still very averse to and being so directly involved in managing and creating a whole new government process or government and its institutions um, and, and getting those processes down to, to, to a ground level to people that, you know, for the most part had, had been removed from any concept of political system where they actually get to participate in um, for quite some time. So. And yet the United States will continue to gauge in that to adverse effects, originally not just in Iraq, but in Afghanistan as well. Mm -hmm. I know you two both have touched on the tensions leading up to the invasion, but was there anything else contributing to that besides the obvious, like you and I say shooting down Iraqi planes, flying below a certain barrier, any legislation perhaps? In the, I believe the late 90s, actually under Clinton, before Bush comes to power, there was a a change in, you know, before they were opposing Iraqi expansion, right, like with the invasion of Kuwait, but with the uh, Liberation Act, the, act the U.S. formally makes its position that it actually opposes the Saddam regime wholesale. So not merely a, a support to curbing its power, but actually would support, you know, some sort of regime change. Now, it didn't explicitly say we would, that the U.S. policy is now that we should uh, remove Saddam from power, but that any, you know, sort of activities to that effect would be in the U.S. interest. One, one, one kind of like little addendum to that. I think it also comes on the heels of a lot of developments in the mid-90s that get lost in U.S. foreign policy discussions, which is humanitarian interventionism um, and R2P. Um, U.S. interventions in Bosnia, in Kosovo, all, I think, colored U.S. foreign policy establishment and policymakers on both sides of the aisle going into the 2000s and the turn of the millennium into a more pro-intervention stance. We can do this, we can change governments with force. Um, application of military force can be swift and decisive. So, and that kind of, I think, colored that legislation as well. And I think to kind of build on that, it understandably would give the impression that, you know, some U.S. <laughs> military in intervention can be really great in terms of U.S. interests, right? I could very easily see uh, policymakers thinking, well, we, we, we intervened in the former Yugoslav republics and, you know, it seems like there's a fairly lasting, good uh, resolution. Now, obviously, there were many differences. One of the biggest is that, you know, there were some air support or some very limited um, actual deployment, but there was nothing like the sort of intervention on the scale that the U.S. would do in Iraq that they had anything like uh, in Yugoslavia. And I think both of you have brought up good points. I think it's important to contextualize that time-wise for our listeners. Yep. The original Persian Gulf War happened under 
George H.W. Bush's administration, and then the successful interventions in Kosovo and Bosnia happened under the Clinton administration, and then it's now that we come into George W. Bush's administration, the younger Bushes, that we see the invasion of Iraq and the turning of the 21st century. I wanted to, we'll touch on the impacts of the war later, specifically within Iraq, but I wanted to ask both of you the question of, has America come to a reckoning as we pass this 20th year anniversary for the failures of the Iraq war? I'll turn to you as our domestic analyst, Kieran, of asking what has been the government's approach to this? Of Has there been a reckoning by the general American government and populace? So with regards to the government in particular, I think the most clear effort has been, um, there's you can actually go online and still dig it up. It's called SIGIR. It's an acronym, S-I-G-I-R, which is the Special Inspector General for Iraqi Reconstruction. Um, it was the only real attempt at actually looking at the process what the U.S. was doing in Iraq. How are we using our soldiers? How are we using um, the money that we're putting in this country? How are our political ambitions with regards to trying to build a, a democratic state going there? And it's pretty brutally honest to the point that it got shut down uh, in 2011 when we quote-unquote pulled out. We never really fully did. There was also one established for Afghanistan in 2008, but the Iraq one dates I think from around 2004 to 2011, and it's a really good peek into what the honest assessment of this um, special inspector general that was appointed by Congress to examine the Iraq war at, you know, what we're doing there, what's working, what's not. That being said, unless you are kind of a political junkie like me or you go to school like this, like me, most people aren't going to know about that. It was never advertised. It is all public information, but it's very difficult to find. It's not particularly accessible. You have to go through audits and quarterly reports and things like that. But, you know, from the leaders who got us into this conflict in the first place, the foreign policymakers, the think tanks, the media figures, there has not, I think, been, and this is also true of Vietnam, it seems to be a kind of a lingering problem um, in, in the U.S., is not really been a full psychological reckoning with the decision-making process, um, the various pressure, ideological and human pressures, right, of, of how these decisions were made and how Iraq got to the point that it got to this day, you know, 20 years later. I think another way of looking at it is I don't think most people in America, I don't think most Americans, if you ask them, was the Iraq war a good mm-hmm. idea. I think very few would say yes. Mm-hmm. And that includes, certainly that includes Democrats, people who would have voted for Al Gore against George Bush. But that includes, I think, even um, Republican voters, people who voted for George W. Bush and maybe supported the war at the time would say it was a horrible idea. And I think that's super clear. And I think it has had um, huge repercussions on uh, Americans' uh, foreign policy views, just mm-hmm. average Americans given that the Republican Party, the party of Bush, the party of neoconservative pro-military intervention, is probably right now the party that is even more skeptical of uh, foreign military involvement. Um, Not to say that the Democratic Party currently supports something like the Bush administration, anything like what the Bush administration supported. But I think, if anything, it, it put in the minds of a lot of Americans that there is a lot of benefit to isolationism or that being intervened in foreign affairs is just a bad idea for America in general. While, you know, it seems like maybe the Democratic Party has kind of taken a slightly more middling or nuanced road. But I I think most definitely America has, even if it doesn't understand all the details, I think most Americans would say that it was a bad idea in the first place and was a failure. For, you, for sure. And I mean, it radically changed the political, I mean, every political dynamic in this country. I mean, it determined elections almost, I'd argue, up to 2016. That being said, that's a reckoning of one sort. But when it comes to actual policymakers, people who are 
in positions of power and the, the type of ideology, ideology that they're advocating, that is unfortunately not taboo in circles in Washington when it really should be. Um, you never, if it, maybe once or twice, but you rarely if ever saw people like Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, you know, Condoleezza Rice, um, uh, Colin Powell, John Bolton, ever apologize, or actually worse, back up their decision making even though public opinion radically, I mean, after the first years of the war in 2005, public opinion almost did a complete 180 right. um, on the conflict. Some of these people have still backed their decision 20 years later when the you know consequences of the war have been painfully evident, not to just people here who have, you know, unlike other wars, it's obviously lower casualties, but people have lost friends, people have been, you know, lost limbs, it's been massive economic burden as well in the country. People are acutely aware of the problems of the conflict, but these people, you know, who were in charge in the first place, these architects, have yet to either fully reckon or at least admit that they made some mistakes in the process, um, which I think is a huge problem. You know, they're, they're still allowed in these social circles in Washington. They're not, you know, they're, they're not almost untouchables. Yeah, I, I would say just to quickly yeah. add, uh, you make a good point in the sense that I know like in 2016 and, and up till even now, but especially in 2016, for example, Trump and Clinton would argue about their support for the Iraq war. Trump would say, he would use this as a as a condemnation of Hillary Clinton that she supported uh, military action, and you know there was dispute over whether he did initially. But even under the Trump administration, they included uh, John Bolton uh, as part of their yep. administration for a time, and he was n- he was always and remained and is still very hawkish. So you're you are right that strain is not completely gone. Yeah, and. I do think you bring up valuable points, Kieran, and Liam, about the reshaping of American politics and like many administration officials under the Bush administration not apologizing, but still managed to gain positions of influence and power in later on administrations. But I wanted to draw an attention to it's not just I feel that our politicians had a failing of like principles and mm-hmm. making decision making, but American intelligence as well. Do you want to get into that, Kieran? Yeah, and I also don't want to like overly cast these people as, you know, they woke up in the morning and thought about invading Iraq and went to bed thinking about the same thing because they really just didn't like Saddam. Part of that's a little bit true, but it's also just a, a cast of characters that were scripted for the worst moment for them to be scripted. So, you know, but uh, yeah, there was massive intelligence failures, obviously. Um, I mean, the U.S. relied on a few sources, some of which were a series of Iraqi exiles um, who had been forced to leave <laughs> the country by Saddam and hadn't been to the country in decades and had no knowledge of the actual internal uh, political affairs of Iraq by that time and the way politics had changed, the way popular opinion about certain policies had changed. Um, you also had, you know, very vague claims that Iraq was had WMD programs, mobile weapons labs, despite UN inspectors in October of 2002, about, you know, five, six months before the invasion, declaring that they hadn't found anything um, and were renewed to search again the next year. The U.S. Uh, refused to wait. But you had intelligence failures from human intelligence, and then you also had, I, th- I think, the collision with some of the ideological projects and the, the general sense of being quick on the trigger or quick to draw as well from the, from the political figures involved as well. I don't know if you have anything to add on that, Liam. Um, no, I, I think I mostly agree. I, I do think that it, like I was kind of hinting at earlier, I think the U.S. had you know, many uh, legitimate gripes <laughs> against uh, the Saddam regime, but I think we'll kind of touch on more later, but, but yeah. And I mentioned your, you mentioned a point, Kieran, earlier, talking about the impact on American elections, you argue, up to 2016. Mm-hmm. What would you say that impact was? How did it impact President Bush, who's the one who 
launched the war at the time or President mm -hmm. Obama, his successor, who had to deal with the aftermath. Yeah, I mean, I'll just kind of take a brief tour through the twists and turns. Basically, as, as, as fortunes were made and lost in this conflict, you saw political figures were likewise made and lost kind of by the news headlines. So obviously the invasion happened in March and April of 2003 um, and kind of on the heels of that post 9-11 moment where, you know, there's a, a sense of unity in the country and also a sense of fear from external threats, obviously terrorism. Um, you have all the orange and red alerts for terrorism that Bush is issuing as well. But immediately in the following year, in the wake of the invasion, before things had really gotten bad, Bush re, you know, was reelected in the 2004 presidential election um, and was able to you know, really profit from the initial success of, of the invasion and, and this kind of post 9-11 monoculture when it came to this foreign policy decision. But then as things turned in later 2004 and particularly 2005 and six, when the Sunni and Shia militia groups really started going at each other and, and the United States and casualties were mounting, they lost the midterms pretty badly. Um, you also have scandals like Abu Ghraib prison, you know, torture, um, and a lot of excessive civilian casualties um, that would turn opinion very radically against Bush and the war. Um, and then Iraq, uh, or Obama, Barack Obama in 2008, um, would be elected in a large part on a promise to withdraw from Iraq. It was not just health care and you know, a general sense of populism, but really his anti-war stance, which he had held since 2002, and it's you know, important to give him credit there where it's due. Um, Trump, too. I mean, he notoriously challenged Jeb Bush on the debate stage, who said that his, Jeb Bush had said that his, um, George Bush had kept the country safe, you know, by invading Iraq, and that, you know, was a justified decision, at least at the time. And um, Trump called him out and said it was one of the worst decisions that the U.S. had ever made, and it was a huge part, I think, of, of um, why he was elected in in 2016 beside some of the other rhetoric. Just to turn away briefly from the United States, I wanted to look at the effects of the war on Iraq, because you mentioned, Kieran, the fighting breaking out in 2004, 2005, 2006 between the different militias. So I kind of just want to get a sense of what was the political situation in before the war in Iraq, and what was it after the invasion? Either of you can start off with that. You know, before uh, the invasion, before the 2003 invasion, Saddam was obviously uh, still keeping a very tight grip um, on Iraq, even after the Gulf War, in which his military was like pretty obliterated by the coalition forces. But I think there was a lot of uh, kind of feet dragging in terms of its cooperation with international efforts to monitor its um, weapons development programs. It seems like in the end, it was not developing weapons of mass destruction or not actively. But there was first absolutely a uh, maintaining of the knowledge and the information mm -hmm. so that potentially when sanctions ended, uh, when, it be when it would become more possible in the future, that um, I think definitely the Saddam regime wanted to keep WMDs basically uh, as a possibility in the future. I, I don't know if that kind of answers that more, but I think there was a still, you know, not a turnaround of its, you know, anti-U.S., very aggressive, um, very, yeah, very aggressive, really wanting to, I think Saddam really wanted to maintain Iraq's position as a very powerful uh, military presence in the region and, and try to rival the power, um, rival the dominance that other countries had over the region. Do you have anything to add on to that, Kieran? No, nothing in particular. I, yeah, I think it's it is also important. I mean, they did retain the kind of the the know-how and some of the institutions to 
continue those WMD programs. The only thing that was ever really found were a, a series of uh, chemical weapons caches that were expired from the Iran-Iraq war, right. um, which were no longer usable. But that was all that was really ever found in the end. So. I think it's inevitable that when we talk about the impacts or effects of war, we also talk about the casualty numbers of things. So what were the casualty numbers for the United States by the end of this conflict, and uh, how much did the Iraqi people suffer? Yeah, so, I mean, compared to previous U.S. conflicts, it was at least conflicts like Vietnam and the World Wars, obviously, and, and the Korean War, casualties were fairly low, um, you know, around, um, I think, just under 4,000 um, or so um, from, from coalition forces, most of which were, were American. That being said, casualty rates on a daily basis were pretty high, despite the U.S. having, you know, military supremacy, certainly in the air and on the ground. But, you know, as, as insurgent groups mounted and were armed, we'll get to the evacuation in a second, you know, U.S. casualties were, were becoming pretty egregious. But even more egregious were the casualties suffered by the Iraqi army, which I think in the initial invasion lost something in the underruns of around 30,000 troops. And then you're getting into the actual casualties of insurgents who were killed, civilians who were killed, um, and excess deaths related to the war, um, which by 2011, some estimates had as high as over a million. Um, and the low-ball estimates are like around 300,000. But it's still disputed to this day, um, depending on the statistic you want to go by. Yeah. And the United States ended up withdrawing from Iraq around 2011. Would you say, Kieran and Liam, the current stability of the Iraqi government, of how much it's been able to handle the devastation that occurred during the initial invasion and then having to um, deal with the withdrawal of the coalition in the United States, um, but also with the rising of insurgent groups as well? I think the kind of instability that Iraq sees now, which it does see, there is uh, still a great level of instability. But while it obviously stems from some of the the same kind of sources as it did in the uh, months and years preceding the or er, um, following the uh, invasion, I think now there's a lot of instability related to political jockeying um, between different kind of sects of not only between, you know, Sunnis and Shias and Kurds, but even among Shias, right? Even among Sunnis, there's a lot of political sectarianism. There isn't necessarily the same type of insurgency where Sunni jihadis are, you know, trying to basically rid their their country of Western invaders. It's, you know, Iraqis of all of all backgrounds squabbling over influence of either Iran, the U.S., any other power, and influence that they have over um, other Iraqis. The only brief thing I might add to that is, I mean, in the early 2010s, it was incredibly unstable. The state that we kind of built in Iraq almost collapsed in on itself in 2014 um, under the weight of ISIS, which was also a direct uh, consequence of, of our invasion there. One thing I want to note, though, is our U.S. You know, our policy of debathification, which is part of the reason it was so unstable in the first place, saw us rip out the entire Iraqi government, everyone who worked for the Baathist Party, everyone in the military, and made them unemployed overnight. You have hundreds of thousands of young men who are politically motivated, who are unemployed, and are armed. <laughs> it wasn't going to go well, and those people are, you know, still part of the drivers of conflict there today. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, Liam. I think that the invasion of Iraq left a void, and as Karen said, the effect of taking down wholesale the Iraqi government and the cooperation between the United States and Iraq earlier against the greater threat in the region for the United States was Iran. Did this invasion positively impact Iran's ability to attain more influence in the region? 
I mean, I would say yes, uh, without question. I think from a more, a very cynical pro-U.S. position, the ability for Iran to gain so much influence in Iraq might actually be the biggest failure, at least from a very current perspective, because it really created a a situation where you removed a you know very anti-U.S. very a leader under Saddam who, or in the person of Saddam who was very much aggressive and counter to U.S. interests, but he was very much also uh, anti-Iran. And now you present Iran with this very unstable government, this very vulnerable power vacuum state where Iran uh, can curry a lot of favor with its fellow Shias who make up the majority. And now we see that uh, within Iraq, there are many uh, Shia militants who cooperate actively with um, both Syrian forces, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and most certainly with Iran. And I think that is definitely one of the key challenges that the U.S. faces in its relationship with Iraq today. I think we're coming quickly to the end of our Mm. episode, so I want to just get some final concluding thoughts from you both on, in summary, what are your takeaways from the, as we pass this 20th anniversary, and do you think the United States has fully reckoned with the Iraq war and all the impacts that it had? I'll start with you, Kira. Sure, to keep it brief, I think, um, I think the American people learned their lesson in 2005. I think that the kind of, politi- you know, the military industrial complex, the political industrial complex, all these, you know, various groups in Washington, I think, haven't really fo- fully learned the lesson and aren't interested in doing so. I think there were a lot of failures from the characters who were cast at the time who were in charge politically to ideological problems to intelligence problems and also media problems, which we didn't get to, but I think people should really look up and our fascinating dynamics that really just ushered in this total calamity. Yeah, I, th- I think that uh, certainly in the U.S. there was a sort of optimism and kind of naivete that, um, you know, there were some good intentions, although, you know, you might dispute actually whether the uh, Bush administration or if all personnel actually had truly uh, perfect intentions. But certainly um, I think a lot of Americans saw that, you know, there was a genuine threat and, you know, we could also present the Iraqi people with a great benefit <laughs> by invading and uh, ridding the country of Saddam Hussein. But... I think very clearly that has not turned out to be what actually happened. In fact, it um, was to the detriment of both probably the Iraqi people in many ways and the U.S. Well, thank you both, guys. This has been a very important and informative discussion. Kieran, Liam, thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Joining me now to write out some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Michaela Salib. Hey, Michaela. Hey, Drew. Thank you for coming on the show. So what headlines do you have for us this week? First, we have Taliban presses mute on women radio station. Next, accusations and angry protesters against Kenyan government. And finally, Ramadan X Passover, a brutal crossover episode sparks violence in the Holy Land. That sounds like some important stories to cover. Let's start with a story on the Taliban. On April 1st, the only woman-run radio station called Sadeh Banuwan in Alabad, Afghanistan was shut down by the Taliban for supposedly broadcasting music, which is illegal during Ramadan. The head of the station, Nahia Sorosh, denied these allegations, with the heightened crackdown of Taliban on women employment and educational opportunities, as well as the closing of media outlets and journalist jobs. This situation further highlights the Taliban's aim to suppress the rights of women in the area. A situation that does not seem to be getting any better, unfortunately, for the women of Afghanistan. And you mentioned the unrest in Kenya? In a recent state of unrest, Kenya was bombarded on March 30th 
with violent anti-government protests led by Raila Odigna, who blames President William Ruto for increased living costs and for hacking the election of the previous year to claim the presidency. Odigna claims that the demonstrations won't end unless the government addresses these two issues. Police brutality towards the protesters have caused even further tensions with outside authorities stepping in, trying to ensure police are following proper laws. It is clear that tensions remain high, and we can only hope that there is a break in the violence. And our final story? 26-year-old Mohammed Alasibi was shot and killed after allegedly trying to attack police officers who were trying to stop him from harassing a woman at an entrance to a Jerusalem holy site. Bystanders and family members of the victim demand footage and evidence of these claims. Palestinian worshippers claim that they heard over 10 gunshots in such a close range, which they believe to be unjustified. With this year's overlap of Ramadan and Passover, tensions have increased significantly in the West Bank between the Palestinians and the Israelis, where instances like the killing of Al-Sibi have only furthered conflicts among the two religious groups. Thank you very much for coming on, Michaela. Now that is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on upcoming shows. This show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer Jasmine Delion, associate producers Eric Bunce and Kasha Kostraba, technical producers Andrew Okulia, Juliana Mori, and Bobby Kyle, and of course, your host, Drew Starbuck. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thank you.